Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Lucy Main, a master's student at Monash University. The highest result of education is tolerance, Helen Keller. Great. Thanks, Jane. I've got the um, other member of the Radical Philosophy team in here, live in the studio today. That's Jane. And welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Associate Professor Liz McKinley about feminist pedagogy. Could you give us a definition of feminist pedagogy? Beth, I knew you were going to ask me that question and I decided that I would love to give you a definition, but it's actually quite difficult to define something like feminist pedagogy. And part of the problem relates to, or the problematics of providing a one-size-fits-all description of feminist pedagogy is because of the various ways that people bring feminist understandings and politics and philosophies into teaching and learning. And as you know, there are many different kinds of feminisms and many different shapes and sizes of feminists. And so that's quite true for feminist pedagogy as well and there's a lot of debate in the field around uh, whether someone labels themselves a feminist teacher and addresses feminist content, does that mean that they're actually doing feminist teaching and learning? Um, And the general consensus is that labelling yourself in that way is not sufficient uh, to be a marker of a feminist pedagogy. So I guess when we start to look at the different um, terms and theories and approaches that are used to define, there's a dithering array of terms and metaphors uh, that try to bring meaning to this concept. And and in some ways, when you start looking and trying to, to find your way through that material in literature, it looks quite you know quite chaotic and, and contradictory. Um, so, you know, like any good feminist debate, there's a lot of argument and you know a lot of robust discussion around what it what it should be. But in terms of, I guess, my version of feminist pedagogy, um, I'm very much influenced by an, a number of people. But to describe uh, feminist pedagogy, I some time ago created a, a philosophical character, if you like, called. Ms. Feminist Pedagogy, or Miss FP for short. And one of the things that I decided was really important was that feminist pedagogy is something which dares to subvert the mind-body split and allows a body to be whole in the classroom and, as a consequence, wholehearted. So that idea of really disrupting the patriarchal view that mind-body are in opposition and trying to think about this idea of feminist pedagogy as an embodied process and thereby thinking around the historical body of feminist pedagogy and the contemporary body and what what it might be becoming as as a result of that. 
So I guess for me, very much, it is this idea of disrupting the notion that it's not possible to teach and learn with compassion, not possible to teach and learn from the heart, uh, that emotion is not allowable as a way of knowing, and really trying to think about if we decide if we decide that an embodied way of teaching and learning is appropriate for an enactment of a feminist politic in teaching and learning, what might that look like and what other things uh, come into play. I think one of the things around feminist pedagogy and in any effect being feminist in the academy is that idea of entering into a dangerous borderland where uh, any moment you know, you're not necessarily, you're willingly putting yourself into danger and for me, that's very much a, a Helene Fitzhugh, a Fitzhugian concept of the, the freedoms to be found by putting yourself in a dangerous place in terms of being a woman, becoming a woman, and using teaching and learning to put in place very much a, a, a feminist counterattack to, to a patriarchal way of doing things in teaching and learning. So what was it that inspired your interest in feminist pedagogy? I think for me it was that sense, you know, living and working in neoliberal times in the, in the academy, how might it be to, what might it mean to not live a life divided? You know, neoliberalism is very much about focus on the individual, moving away from a sense of collectivity. And my own sense of being a feminist and a feminist politics has always been this idea of collectivity and collaboration, communication, dialogue, uh, a sisterhood, if you like, of, of, of various kinds. And so I decided that that was very much a principle that I wanted to be able to live and breathe in my classroom so that I could, you know, live a life undivided from uh, my feminist politics and my feminist teaching and learning coming together in, in the one space. Um, it also stemmed very much from my work and the teaching and learning I've received from communities of Indigenous women, particularly up in the Northern Territory, and the emphasis that they have always placed on the centrality of relationship as an important pathway towards knowledge and for knowledge. And that relationship grounds epistemology and it grounds um, who we are in the world and, and it becomes, relationship in some senses becomes a more ethical way of, of teaching and learning and of creating knowledge. And so for me, I felt that that was an important principle that I wanted to bring into my teaching and learning space. And then I started to look around to, to see, well, what, what have other people said about being feminist and having this other way of thinking around pedagogy that's not just about you know, a master filling up the cups which are the students sitting in front of them. Um, what might happen, again, if relationship is at the, is at the centre? And is that something that we could could become or is described um, and theorised through the lens of feminist pedagogy, really trying to live the kind of life, feminist life I wanted to uh, through my teaching and learning. So how long has feminist pedagogy been around? So feminist pedagogy, I guess, really starts to grow up alongside the second wave feminist movement in lots of ways. So, you know, from the 1970s onwards. And it, it kind of comes hand in hand with the development of women's studies, in women and gender studies, or gender studies as we now call it. 
in universities and again thinking about the kinds of interventions that feminisms can make into the knowledge production process and thinking around the idea that you know it's important for women in, in relation to making that intervention to find ways to speak their own voices and to hear those of other women so that that in itself might become an empowering process. So it, it really starts to have an impact in the late 1970s and there's a writer from the US who preferred, didn't use the term feminist pedagogy. She, in 1982 she t- used the term gynagogy which is very much about saying this is about women, women's teaching and learning. It's about really trying to challenge, you know, institutions and cultures that are saturated with phallocentric knowledge systems and really trying to disrupt all the masculinist signifiers. So from there we get, you know, people like Patty Lather in the early 90s writing and Lather and others like her, Carmen Luke and Jennifer Gore, Catherine... Kathleen Wheeler, they're all part and parcel of a critical, what we think of as a critical pedagogy movement, which was looking at the links between power and education and the possibilities of education giving disempowered people a voice and and a possibility of education for change and and liberation. So it's really growing up very much in that political um, educational era. And so it's partly a you know, a post-structuralist, post-modern movement, but very much linked up with feminist politics per se. And the kinds of discourse and theory building that, uh, you know, once feminists had made it into the academy and had some status and authority through programs like Women and Gender Studies, that they really wanted to try to see what they could do to uh, claim some discursive and epistemological, I guess, authority in the space that's typically been the domain of men. And so lots of really interesting discussions. Um, And I guess here in Australia, Carmen Luke and Jennifer Gore really led the way with their work. Uh, They they wrote a book, for example, um, called Feminism and Critical Pedagogy, which has kind of become um, quite a core text in the field. And it's really interrogating what kinds of power is operating in educational sites that works to either disempower or empower women. So both thinking theoretically and practically around what, what happens in classrooms. I've been speaking to people who did their philosophy degree 20 years ago. They said that they didn't study any women philosophers at all. They were, they were all male philosophers. Yes, and that's still a very, very common a common story that you'll find. So one of the questions I often ask my gender studies students or education students I might be working with is uh, just take a look at the reading list and see who's represented there. So, for example, one of the things that I've been doing lately in my own academic writing practice and a, a book I've just finished, which is on feminist pedagogy, I made the decision that I was not going to cite men so, I, you know, I suppose some people see that as a bit of a, a radical and, and maybe a revert, sexist kind of comment, but my viewpoint was, well, men have had plenty of their play in the, dis- the discourse around pedagogy or philosophy, so uh, why not have a book that only only cites men? And there are 
I once wrote a paper where I only cited male philosophers and they were Paulo Freire, Mikhail Bakhtin and Merleau-Ponty. And a very dear female feminist friend of mine said, rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a tub, and who do you think they were? And she sort of laughed and said, well, did you ever think what would happen if you replaced the men in the tub with some women in the tub? What kind of story would you be telling uh, theoretically and philosophically? And, you know, we set over a few glasses of wine, but I've never forgotten that, actually. And where possible... I, I certainly defer to the voices of women as, as kind of a political act to say, well, it's, you know, there are plenty of women out there writing and whose voices we, we simply uh, don't go to because of this kind of default position that it's only the great great white men from five European countries who have anything you know, important to say. So I certainly can uh, sympathise with that sentiment. Yeah, well, I think if if we were try to try to even it up, we'd probably just have to study women philosophers for the next hundred years. Then it I might, think might you're right. <laughs> might be and also, yeah, a way of sort of trying to even it up. <laughs> yeah, I recently attended a conference, which uh, on the face of it, it was a big colonial conference. It, it was it was a really fascinating set of discussions over three days, but very masculinist in terms of. The, the name dropping of all of the Foucault, Derrida, Levinas, and I guess I was sitting, you know, being the naughty little schoolgirl at the back of the, the conference room, writing notes to my my friend sitting next to next to me, and she just happened to say, "Oh, I'm so sick of hearing about all these male philosophers, white male philosophers," and then we started to just imagine imagine a conference where. You were only allowed to come if you cited women. Only women were allowed to be cited at conferences. And uh, talking to some um, older women, you know, a different generation than me, who've been in feminist circles in the academy for a long time, they they were kind of laughing but lamenting that that's a conversation we're still having, even though it was, you know, a radical conversation in the 70s. It's still a conversation that we feel we need to have now, so many years later which I guess, in, from my perspective, really attests to the, you know, the, the formidable centre of phallocentric, uh, masculinist, you know, patriarchy in, in, in the academy that you know, we've, we've still got a lot of work to do. Right, but mm-hmm. um, the picture that I've drawn of Miss Feminist Pedagogy, I'll just explain some of the things that she has on. So she's wearing a pair of Praxis-branded running shoes. So... So her shoes are talking about how to bring theory and practice together and that that in itself is quite central to the liberatory goals of feminism. But in terms of feminist pedagogy, it's about you know, having those kind of shoes, running shoes on, enables feminists to walk the talk and talk the walk in a classroom. Um, so it's grounding feminism in the academy and the classroom as well as in the everyday. And I think to that one of the things about that is that having running shoes on is that in, in the academy the idea of talking feminist or speaking feminist is still not necessarily a very safe place to, to speak from all of the time. Having some running shoes on means that you can, can just keep that one compassionate and two collective steps ahead of anyone who might want to silence you or, or put you out of the way. So this character I've drawn, she's also got 
uh, a necklace around her. Uh, she's wearing a necklace that's just got an engagement ring on it, but not to talk about being married or anything, but just a symbol of always being committed and engaged with a struggle for gender justice and overcoming impression, oppression, sorry. So being able, and what that means is always being attentive to the active and the activist and the politicised nature of teaching, learning and knowledge um, and never shying away from, um, from that, which is about, at one level, giving voice to all of the perspectives that might inform that politicised teaching and learning. Um, we often talk in feminist pedagogy too about you know, being critically consciousness, so always being prepared to interrogate, ask uncomfortable questions, um, and part of that means as well being brave enough to put uh, a gendered or a woman's standpoint at the centre of your teaching and learning. So to kind of flip the gaze around so that it's not patriarchal or a male gaze looking at concepts and trying to understand them, but also uh, constantly thinking, well, if we flip that and, and put women and a gender standpoint, what does that happen this character, Miss Feminist Pedagogy, she's got a hammer in her pocket. Why? Because she wants to smash patriarchy um, and break down all of those you know, illusions around traditional teaching and learning styles. So the idea that you know, in the classroom, the lecturer stands at the front and all of the students sit obediently at the, the lecturer's feet and there's automatically a, a particular kind of power dynamic that's set up in that process. Whereas um, many of the, the, the women that I work with and have spoken to about feminist pedagogy, there's much more of a sense, well, we're going to break, break that hierarchy down in some shape or form so that there can be more of a sense of, it could never be equal, there are always unequal power relationships, but there's always an attempt to try to break down the kind of all-knowing authority of an, an expert standing talking to novices. So that's another thing. Um, there's always, uh, we always say that in a feminist pedagogy and a feminist classroom, there's always room for emotion. So um, having a box, this character has a box of tissues handy. So making sure that, you know, that, that tears, laughter, passion, love even in, in all of its, uh, the platonic sense of the word, you know, is a very much part of how we come to know in the world. And, and making room for that in the ways that we might teach and learn. And another thing that's important is uh, a sense of reflexivity and being able to really interrogate who am I in relation to the knowledge that I'm learning and who am I in terms of how that knowledge might be created and what kinds of performative acts do I undertake to facilitate that teaching and learning. So she's got a handheld mirror um, as well. So there's um, a few different categories that we, we definitely think about that. For me, another aspect of feminist pedagogy that I think is important in this moment that we're in is a, a sensitivity to the, the colonising uh, nature of teaching and learning and what that means from a feminist perspective. So I guess there's some of the, some of the qualities. It's probably not um, a really simple answer, but Certainly the engagement, embodied knowing, emotion, collectivity, they're some of the kind of hallmarks of what we think of in relation to feminist pedagogy. And they do align quite, they should and do align with 
uh, some aspects of a, a feminist politics as well. Oh, she sounds great. So could you explain about the principles of feminist pedagogy? I guess when we think about feminist pedagogy, it's not disconnected from what we might think of. Well, I guess everyone has a different understanding of what feminisms are working towards, but with feminist pedagogy, we, we, we very often speak about teaching and learning practices that at the heart, have a search for gender justice. So it's thinking about how could we teach and learn in a way that makes room for, makes space for and makes possible gender justice in in whatever way we might conceive of that. So some of that that principle might go through to thinking around curriculum. What's the content? Uh, What are we teaching? So if you think about, for example, uh, the safe schools, policy, uh, which is looking at gender diversity in schools and how that uh, is trying to make its way through into curriculum. Uh, Some of the approaches that are contained within there operate very much on a uh, a feminist pedagogy principle of empowerment and education for change. So uh, the inclusion of discussion and content around gender justice is, is one of those principles but then also the the performance of particular teaching and learning techniques that make that possible. So one of the things, for example, that we talk about as a feminist principle is giving voice to disempowered people. We know that that's not always possible and sometimes you might think it's empowering for people but it's actually disempowering. But the actual principle of making it making the possibility of coming to speech or breaking away from exclusion or being silent possible is one of those principles as well. Right, so could you explain about decentering power? Wow, decentering power. When I think about that, one of the things that is crucial in relation to feminist pedagogy and its role in decentering power is the disruption of the, you know, a hegemonic dominant ideology around what teaching and learning should be. So often when you're, particularly say in the academy, in, in higher education, I think it's true in primary and secondary as well, that idea that, you know, the Teaching and learning happens by sitting an exam. It happens by, you know, reading reams and reams and reams of journal articles, writing an essay and just kind of regurgitating the material in that way. So a feminist pedagogy might say, well, actually, that's a very masculine and fellocentric way of thinking around knowledge creation, knowledge production. So let's mess with that a little bit. So sometimes there can be lots of different ways that that decentering of that kind of power can happen. So one of them, for example, might be making space for students to write in a first person. So instead of having to be distant, have an objective, you know, rational kind of logical, presumably, kind of stance, allowing people to bring the personal into a philosophical space, which in many ways, you know, is a, a, the personal is political catch cry in action. So making space for the personal to be a valid way of knowing, which starts to shift and shake a little bit that idea of an objective knower 
and that that objective knowing is is the, the be all and end all when it comes to a capital T truth. So that's one of the techniques that we use. Other things that we might think about, certainly things that I've done with my students, is to uh, instead of writing, doing you know oral presentations, which is something that students do a lot at university, is to get them to perform a play. So they use the theories and the ideas that they've been learning, uh, learning about, and each student in the class writes a scene of a play, and then they perform that, and that becomes an alternative way of embodying knowledge, of sharing knowledge, building a sense of collectivity, uh, making it possible for students to put some of their own knowledge-creating selves into um, the process. So there's lots of really fascinating and creative ways that um, people try to decenter power through a teaching and learning process. Not every person who uh, claims an identity as a feminist academic necessarily feels comfortable with that kind of radical move to really disrupt teaching and learning. They might be comfortable enacting that disruption or subversion through you know, the text that they read or the content that they're covering. But um, it's probably... Um, it, amongst the, uh, at least a, a, a women and gender studies feminist academic community, a word like feminist pedagogy or really understanding what that means is, is not necessarily familiar to, to a lot of people. It's not that it, they're not interested, but there's a lot of other work being done um, at a, more, a different kind of theoretical level. So feminist pedagogy is is quite challenging for, for many different kinds of people. Well, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. That's my pleasure, Beth. And I've been speaking to Associate Professor Liz McKinlay about feminist pedagogy. This is Catherine MacDonald here announcing 3CR Radical Philosophy Program. It's on 8.55 on your AM dial. The fantastic philosophy program introducing us to women philosophers.